Romans chapter 1, as we begin, continue our study, we'll be reading verses 18 through 23. And hopefully, by the time we get to the end of this, your Bible will be like it was in Proverbs. It'll just start falling open to the book of Romans. Maybe the pages will start coming out because we've been in Romans that much and we've learned and gleaned from God's word. But Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 23. The Bible says, For the word of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteous suppress, uh, unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the, in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For all, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to the impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Father, we come to you this morning. We thank you for this opportunity that you've given us to be in your word. We thank you for the truth of your word, Lord. And may the truth of your word in the hands of the Holy Spirit prick our hearts, challenge our minds, and change our actions. May you continue the sanctifying work in our lives through your word as you sanctify us by your word, because your word is truth. And Father, our desire is to know the truth and to know the truth clearly. And so this morning, Lord, we're asking you to help us in that endeavor. You have promised us that the Holy Spirit, part of what he is responsible for in our lives is to lead us into all truth. And so this morning, use the person of the Holy Spirit to do just that. And Lord, use this vessel to bring glory and honor to your holy name. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, at the outset of this, I acknowledge that, hey, I'm, I'm preaching to the choir, okay? I get it. But the choir needs to hear this message as well, all right? And all of those who may hear it online or wherever else it may find itself. This is a message, as all the messages from God's word are, they're important to we who are believers and they are needed for those who are lost. Last week we learned in part of the prologue that Paul reminded us in verse 15 that he was eager to preach the gospel to the Romans, to the church at Rome. And don't miss that point. Who was he eager to preach the gospel to? 
not just the lost folks outside of the church of Rome, but to the church of Rome. So the gospel is something we, is not something that we encounter once in our life and we're done with it. No, the gospel ought to be the driving focus of our life. We live in light of the gospel message of Jesus Christ. And we share the hope of the gospel message with, us, with all of those that God brings into our circle of influence. But Paul, eager to proclaim this gospel, begins to unfold for us and give us reasons why it is that he's eager to share this gospel. Well, the first two we learned last week, and he begins this declaration of his eagerness or explanation of his eagerness by using a little three-letter Greek word called gar. That would be in the English transliterated, G-A-R. Translated into English is the word for, F-O-R. And we see that in several places. Verse 16, he begins with the first reason that he is eager to preach the gospel in Rome. You remember that? For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Then he continued with the second reason. He is eager to proclaim this gospel in verse 17. Not only is it because he's not ashamed of it, but secondly, it is because the righteousness of God is revealed in it. Look, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. And we'll pick up on that aspect of this more specifically when we get to Romans chapter 3 as what Paul is really telling us when he says the righteousness of God is revealed in this gospel. Now we get a little snapshot, or at least a little taste of that today. We get the, we get the bad news today, right? Because the third reason that Paul tells us that he is eager to preach this gospel is in verse 18. He's not ashamed of it because it's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. The righteousness of God is revealed in it. And thirdly, he wants to proclaim this gospel because the wrath of God is revealed in the gospel from heaven. Well, that seems kind of odd, doesn't it? Paul starts where most American Christians have long since left. And that is with the wrath of God as part of the primary reason that he is eager to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. He don't wait till the end of this letter. He didn't wait till the end of the sermon to talk about God's wrath. He front loads this letter. He front loads this book with the idea that God's wrath is revealed in the truth of the gospel against humanity. And he will spend from this point all the way to chapter 3, the end of chapter 3, helping us understand what that means. That's how important this one truth is all about. Paul's going to labor hard for two and a half chapters 
helping us understand how the gospel, how the, how the righteousness of God is revealed and how the wrath of God is revealed and what the remedy of that is as it relates to the power of God in salvation through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I hope you're anticipating when we get to chapter 3 because all of this is going to come together in chapter 3. Well, today we're going to look at this text from three headings, Lord willing and time permits. We're going to unfold it by looking first at this wrath of God that is revealed. And then secondly, we're going to really look at the reason the wrath of God is re- revealed. And that is in under two, the second two headings. One, the nature of God's been revealed. And two, men have rebelled against the revelation of God. They've rebelled against God. So we'll see the, the revelation of God and we'll see the nature of the rebellion of men. But first, we have to deal with this issue of the wrath of God. And we see that in verse 18. Remember, Paul, verse 15, I'm eager to share the gospel. And here's the third reason why, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So when I was thinking about this issue of the wrath of God, I thought about what what is this wrath of God? How can we explain or understand the, the aspects of God's wrath? Because quite frankly, what we're dealing with this morning is only one aspect of the wrath of God. God's wrath, at least is manifest in four categories. Now, this is not something I've come up with. This is stuff that I've heard and, and borrowed from other people. And As a matter of fact, I use the exact same language as John MacArthur in, in the last one that I'll share with you related to our text today because I didn't know how to describe it any better than he did. First, and I think most everyone would understand that God's wrath has been revealed in what would be considered cataclysmic wrath, right? Go to Genesis chapter 6. What do we learn about in Genesis chapter 6 with Noah and the flood? That is God using the waters of the world to bring about his cataclysmic wrath in destroying and judging a wicked humanity wherein only eight souls were saved in the midst of that outpouring of God's wrath. Another place we see that is uh, Genesis 19 when God's cataclysmic wrath is poured out on one particular city called Sodom and Gomorrah. All right, you remember that story? And then a third way, I think, again, on a particular nation, God poured out his cataclysmic wrath would have been in Egypt, right? And God had a purpose for that, showing to the world that he was the one true and living God. And he brought all of these plagues upon Egypt to show the weakness and the falseness of all of their deities and ultimately showing to the world that he was the one true and living God. So cataclysmic wrath is one of the first categories of God's wrath. 
Then there's a second category that people have called eschatological wrath. Eschatological, eschatology has to do with last things. It comes from eschatos, meaning last. It has to do with last things. So our minds automatically would go to place like, places like Revelation, right? Or go to places like Daniel, uh, because there's some eschatology or last things talked about in Daniel and Revelation. You could even go to Matthew, Matthew 20, 24, 25. I think there's some, uh, Jesus talks about some eschatological aspects in those chapters. The eschatological wrath in the Old Testament and in the New, it is used, but primarily in the Old Testament, we see the phrase, and you've heard it and read it, the day of the Lord. You ever heard that phrase or seen that phrase in the Bible? You see, in Old Testament times, you know, there is a specific day when God was going to pour out his wrath. Now, that doesn't mean God wasn't pouring out wrath all along, right? Because we saw it in many places. As a matter of fact, just in our reading this morning uh, in the Bible, this is what the men are going through. Uh, we read about where God swallowed up some folks with, by opening the earth. And that was specific cataclysmic wrath, wasn't it? Uh, on a particular group of people and a family. But this eschatological wrath looks at this end time wrath when God ultimately once and for all pours out his wrath on this world and all of, of unrighteous, lost humanity. And a couple of references I'd give you. Zephaniah 1, 14 through 15. The Bible says, The great day of the Lord is near. Near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day. So there's no question that the Bible clearly depicts this day of the Lord as a day of wrath that is yet to come. Uh, Revelation 7 is another place where this idea is used in the New Testament. For the great day of their wrath has come. So God, in that day of wrath, is pouring out his wrath. And he says, really, in that verse, who, who can stand? Well, the answer to that question is, apart from Jesus Christ, no one can stand in the day of wrath. And probably the greatest picture of that eschatological wrath is in chapter 19 of Revelation when Jesus comes on the horse, right? You remember that? And he leads the armies of heaven to pour out his wrath upon the earth. Then there's a third aspect to this wrath of God. It is the eternal wrath of God. And that has to do with the eternal pouring out or the eternal punishment that comes upon those who die in their sin and are cast into the lake of fire. Jesus mentions this in the Gospels when he says that it is a place where the fire is never quenched. And their worm never dies. And there's going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Revelation talks about this in Revelation 20. Uh, in Revelation 20, after the second resurrection, at the end of that chapter in verses 15, 14 and 15, the Bible says, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. 
That's the eternal wrath of God being poured out on lost humanity, on the unregenerate, rebellious angels and Satan himself. And the reality is anyone who dies in their sin will find themselves in this eternal wrath of God. And then the last one, which is more pertinent to our text today, is what John MacArthur called the abandonment wrath of God. You can, you can even call it maybe a personal wrath, but abandonment, I think, fits real well once we get into the next section. I read that uh, extra verse, verse 24, because it talks about God uh, gave them up. And that's the heart of this abandonment wrath, is God is turning these people over to their depravity. And he will make it very clear to us as we go through the next section. But just to give you insight and to whet your appetite, why is it that God is doing what he's doing to these people? Why is it that God is pouring out this present wrath, this abandonment wrath on the people? Verse 24, we've already read, Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity. Romans 1.26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. In Romans 1.28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind. That's why it's called the abandonment wrath of God, because God abandons these people in their sinfulness and turns them over to the debauchery that they desire to live in. And so Paul spends really the rest of this chapter helping, or the rest of this section, helping us understand why it is, or at least to begin to understand why it is that God pours out this wrath in this way. And next week we'll learn how God, or what the results of that wrath are on the people that God pours this wrath out on. And so that leads to this idea of the nature of this abandonment wrath, if you will, this wrath of God that is being poured out. So when I was thinking about that, I think we had to, we have to make some clarifications because one, we've got to remember that this is God's wrath. Because a lot, when we see the word wrath, even when we read it in the Bible, we think about God of wrath, we almost always associate wrath in a negative way because of how we deal with the issue of wrath. Because when I get angry, when I demonstrate my wrath, it's not always in the right way in the, for the right reasons, right? I don't always do it in a righteous, just way. And so we've got, we've got to make a distinction between how we may incorrectly display our anger and wrath. God's not like us. This is God's wrath, which means that it is just and it is justified. If God pours out his wrath, it is because it is justly deserved. And he is justified in pouring it out on those who deserve it. The problem is we don't think we deserve it. We think that we are basically decent human beings and we don't deserve God to pour wrath out on anyone 
And we think that God of the Old Testament was a mean, vindictive, wrathful God. And the God of the New Testament is merely a God who loves us and has a wonderful plan for our life. Well, God does love us, and he does have a wonderful plan for our life. But the reality is the same God who was in the Old Testament is the same God who is in the New Testament. Right? And the God who poured out his wrath in the Old Testament is also, at this moment, pouring out his wrath in the New Testament era, in our day. And one day, he will ultimately pour out his wrath on all of humanity and on this world. God's wrath is just. Listen to what J.I. Packer says. J.I. Packer says, God's wrath in the Bible is never capricious, self-indulgent, irritable, morally ignoble thing, that human anger so often is. It is instead a right and necessary reaction to objective moral evil. So in other words, if we want God to be holy, right? We believe that. God is holy. And God is just. And if we want God to be just, then God must be angry at sin and God must punish those who engage in sinful activity. Otherwise, he is no God at all. And when God pours out his wrath, it is in a honorable, just, and justified way. And it is deserved upon those who receive it. And we are the ones who deserve to receive it. When I say we, uh, I'm not talking about the rat in my pocket. I'm talking about me and you. All of us deserve for God to pour his wrath out on us. Because all of us, by nature, are children of wrath. And Paul points that out to us in Romans 2 and verse 5. We'll get there in a few weeks. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourselves on the day of wrath when when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So this is God's wrath, and God's wrath is just. And God's wrath is justified because we are children of wrath. Look what Ephesians 2, 1, and 3, 1 through 3 says as Paul writes about this wrath of God. He says, And you were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. See, that's our problem. We don't believe what Ephesians tells us about what we used to be. Or those outside of Christ, what they are. Children of wrath. And so when God pours out his wrath on sinners, it's because we deserve it. So God's wrath is just and justified. Not only that, it is revealed presently in this moment. 
See, it's not a matter. We look out in America, right? Uh, it was many years ago, I think, uh, Billy Graham, I think it was an article in the newspaper that he had written and he had made the statement in there, something to this effect, that if God doesn't judge America, that he's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. You can imagine how many years ago that was, and just what would you think he would say today if he were sitting here and then writing that same article? Well, here's the reality of the thing. It's not if God is going to judge America or Americans or people who live continually in that kind of sinful lifestyle and debauchery that we see going on in our world. It is that God is right now presently revealing his wrath and judging America in this moment. Next week, we will make that very clear. Is how is God doing that? But you and I need to know what Paul is telling us in this text, that right now, in this moment, look, look at what the passage says. It says that God's wrath is revealed. Present tense. Right now. Paul's perspective in the first century. Our perspective today. God's wrath is is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness of men and all unrighteousness of men. And don't miss this point. We want to separate the prepositional phrase at the end of that passage, of men, from the two words that precede that prepositional phrase ungodliness and unrighteousness. And what we want to do is say that God is pouring out his wrath on ungodliness and unrighteousness as if that is just some philosophical abstract construct and that God is pouring out his wrath. He's angry at unrighteousness. He's angry at ungodliness, but that has nothing to do with the prepositional phrase which says of men. You cannot separate the acts of ungodliness and unrighteousness from the people who perpetrate them. That doesn't make sense, right? So God is pouring out his wrath on the men and the women and the boys and the girls who perpetrate ungodliness and unrighteousness. And it is being revealed in this moment. And that's not just a, a, a Romans Pauline construct. You remember the Apostle John in chapter 3? When he's talking about being born again, you remember Nicodemus has no idea what he's talking about. You must be born again. And then you get down to verse 18, and the Lord is explaining what this idea of being born again is. And he says, He that believes in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already. What does that mean? That means God's condemnation is presently, actively upon those who do not believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God and that he did what he said he did and he was raised from the dead on the third day. And then he goes over in ending that chapter in verse 36. In verse 36, he says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son, and don't miss that change of phrase. What is he saying? Believing in the Son of God is being obedient to the command of the gospel. Remember, I've told you before, the gospel is not God's request. 
is God's command that we bow our knee to Jesus Christ. That's why he can write, Paul can write like he does in Philippians. Remember chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Every knee, one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. But he's calling us in this moment to be obedient to that through believing in Christ. And if we are not, here's what he says at the end of verse 36 in John chapter 3. He says, whoever does not obey the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Right now, in this moment, if you're not in Christ, you're under the wrath of God. So that becomes the question for you and me. Are we in Christ or are you living at this moment, in this present time, with the weight of the wrath of God abiding on you. And you're only one heartbeat away from moving from this present abiding wrath to the eternal wrath of God. And I've already gone ahead of myself and mentioned this next aspect, which is the objects of God's wrath. The ungodliness of men and the unrighteousness of men. So the of men, the men are, and the women, those who perpetrate these two, are the objects of the wrath. But what does this ungodliness and this unrighteousness mean? What does it picture? Well, ungodliness has to do with our vertical relationship. It's sin against God. And unrighteousness righteousness, while it is sin against God, it has as much to do with our horizontal relationships, our sin against our fellow man. And you can summarize it in how Jesus summarized it. This ungodliness, as we will see at the end of this section, has to do with how men dishonor God by not worshiping him but worshiping idols, making from the creation images to worship rather than worshiping the creator. And this unrighteousness has to do with how that kind of dishonoring of God causes us to dishonor humanity, dishonor ourselves, dishonor the created order of man and how we fail to treat one another in, in a righteous way in light of God's created order. And Jesus summarized this very nicely for us in Matthew. I think it's Matthew chapter 22, verses 33, 34 in there. You remember the story or the narrative when Jesus was asked the question, what is the greatest commandment? You remember that? And Jesus starts out and he says, well, the greatest commandment is this, quoting from the Old Testament, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And in that one statement, Jesus summarized the first four commandments in the Ten Commandments, didn't he? Don't take the Lord's name in vain. Don't, don't have any idols, right? Honor the Sabbath, Right? Don't worship any other gods. 
And then Jesus didn't stop there. See, that's our vertical relationship. Because we, apart from Christ, are just like these people. We don't honor God. We don't worship Him. That's the vertical aspect of it. They didn't love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I'm here to tell you, there's not a person outside of Jesus Christ who can love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Not a one. As a matter of fact, I'd even go so much further to say that there's not a person who wants to love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength apart from Jesus Christ. And Paul's going to bear that out for us in the text when we get closer and closer to Romans chapter 3, and really in this, in this passage as well. Because it's not that we don't know the truth. What does he tell us in this text? They know God, but they suppress that knowledge of God. And then the second aspect of this, this is going to be a one-point sermon today because we won't get to the other two. The second aspect of this is this unrighteousness. Because Jesus didn't stop with, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He says, and the second one is like it. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. And then he explained to them what he meant by these and how significant these two commandments were. Basically, the Lord was saying, hey, the greatest commandment is the first four. And a close second are the last six. Because when he tells us to love our neighbors ourselves, what is he telling us? Don't covet, don't steal, don't bear false witness, right? Honor your father and your mother. All of those things are encompassed in this idea of loving our neighbor as our self. And Jesus said at the end of that, on these two commandments hang all of the law and the prophets. He was saying everything that God has been proclaiming to you in what we would call the Old Testament, everything that God has been proclaiming to you throughout history hangs on those two commandments. And the reality is we are just like these people in this text. Apart from Christ, I cannot love my neighbor as myself. I don't have within me the ability to do that. And I'm here to tell you, even as a believer in Christ, I struggle to consistently love my neighbor as myself. You know why? Because my nature, my flesh, wants me to love myself more. Because I want what I want. And don't tell me you're not any different. Because I know you. Because you're human. That's why I get frustrated when things don't go the way I want them to go. When plans, I have to change my plans. Why am I frustrated? Not because I'm loving my neighbors myself, because I'm aggravated that I didn't get my way because I love myself and I want what I want when I want it. So even as a follower of Christ, I need the constant sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit to change me into a person who loves my neighbor as myself and thinks 
more of my neighbor than I do of myself. And then the catalyst of all of this, obviously, are tied up in these two words, ungodliness and unrighteousness. But here's ultimately the trigger that causes this wrath of God to be revealed in this present moment. These people and the people like them today. What does the text say? It is because of their unrighteousness that they suppress the truth of God. And in so doing, they become rebels against God. And God in his justice is right to pour out his wrath on all those who rebel against him. But we know that's not the end of the story, right? But here's the thing. You and I, just like Paul, we have to front load this issue in our communication of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because what we have done for all of my lifetime and all of my experience in American Christianity, what we have done is we have abandoned the bad news of the gospel. And we've shared only one side of the coin. So people have really no idea why it is they must be saved. So the gospel by nature becomes just news unless we share the bad news and the good news. How much more significant is the good news of Jesus Christ when people understand that they right now in this moment are under the wrath of God? And they are heading toward the eternal wrath of God. So in this moment, you are either a child of wrath or you're a child of God in Christ Jesus. You are either a son and daughter of Adam who is dead in your trespasses and sins or you are in Christ Jesus when you have received God's mercy and you have been given the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's the only two places people exist today. And I don't know where it is that you are. I would think that everyone in here is, is saved, but if I didn't share with you this fact and s assume that there may be a lost person, then I'm not doing what I'm called to do as a proclaimer of the truth of Christ. So today, if you are not for sure that if you died in this moment that you would go to be with him, then you don't need to leave this place without becoming sure. In just a few chapters, Paul's going to remind us in chapter 10, here's what you have to do. Confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus. Believe in your heart that God's raised him from the dead. And he doesn't say you might be. He says you will be saved, right? And what's the equivalent of that? And, and another way to say it, what are these people doing? They are acknowledging the truth of who Jesus is and what he did. 
and they are surrendering their will to that truth. That's what salvation is all about. It is about bowing our knee to God. If you haven't done that today, don't leave here without doing that. Well, we'll pick up this section next, next week.